Well, good morning, Summit Church. Want to uh, welcome you at all of our campuses here. I got something right at the beginning, especially for you, uh, for you covenant members here of the Summit Church. Uh, this, uh, if you are a first-time guest or a fairly new guest here, I'm definitely not talking to you right now. In fact, this is kind of family talk, uh, sort of like when you were, uh, you know, a kid and you were at a friend's house, and all of a sudden their family gets into a discussion at the dinner table you really wish you were not a part of. Uh, that may be how you feel in the next couple of minutes. I would tell you go get a cup of coffee, but it'll just take it'll just be a couple of minutes. So, uh, so here it goes. Um, a lot of our covenant members uh, at this time of year start. Um, a lot of them will end up giving a good deal to the church here in the la- in the month of December. Just um, that's how they they arrange their giving. And so I want to make you aware that there are three different ways that you can do that. Uh, and I wanted you to hear all three of them together because sometimes these things can get confused. The first one is just what we call our general offering. Every week we take this up. This is what supports the ongoing ministries of the Summit Church. Uh, you know, this is what I, this year, if you were here on Tuesday night, we baptized nearly 500 people this past year. Our small groups grew from 120 groups to uh, 210 groups. Uh, children's ministry, student ministries, our counseling ministry. Um, our church planning and missionary training and, and uh, the, the five areas of ministry that we focus on in our city, the homeless, the orphans, prisoners, unwanted mothers and dropouts, your tithes and offerings go to support that on an ongoing basis. Um, the second way that people give here around this time of year is what we call our Believe Project. Our Believe Project are the funds that are used to expand the ministries of the Summit Church in other places in the Triangle. Uh, you know, for example, we are opening up another venue here in the Briar Creek area to accommodate some of the growth that God is giving to us uh, on the weekend. Um, our Cole Mill campus is relaunching as the North Durham campus here uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, our North Raleigh campus launched this year, now averaging over 500 people. Those are all things that are, are, are provided for by the Believe Project uh, to help us expand those facilities to be able to do that. The third way is a Christmas missions offering, which you've heard a lot about, hopefully here in the last few weeks. That is a goal we've set up, $300,000, which is money we just give away. We give it away to our church plants. We give it away to what's going on overseas. We give it away to ministries here in the Triangle area that meet one of those five um, area needs. And so uh, we just love at Christmas time to give a special, larger gift to them. Uh, and so that's what that is. For our covenant members, um, that may be something that as you're thinking about, I just want you to hear them together. Our family, honestly, we love giving to all three of those things. Uh, we give uh, on a monthly basis to just support the ministries here. We give because uh, I want to see this church grow and reach other parts of the triangle that we haven't touched yet. And then I want to uh, give, especially at Christmas time, to some of these special mission projects. There's just nothing that, uh, that we would rather do at Christmas than to see Jesus taking the people that don't know him yet. Uh, now, you may hear that. You'd be like, well, that's a, that's a lot. I've told you this before. God and I have played this game. We played this game for 10 years in a row. 10 years in a row, we, we, we've gone at it. And the game is who can outgive who, right? He has won 10 years in a row. I am 0 and 10, but we are playing again this year. Uh, and that is, it's just as, as you find the joy of being generous, you find that God is so richly generous, so much more than you can be, and he loves to outgive you. So um, that's what I want you to be aware of as we get started here, okay? All of your other guests, those of you that are, you can come back in now, you can zone back in because uh, family talk is over. Uh, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to take it out and open it to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 will tell you that this has always been one of my favorite Bible passages. When I was a teenager, the title of this section of my Bible was simply David Dances 
naked before the Lord. What is not intriguing about that? Have you noticed that whoever wrote First and Second Samuel had a, a flair for the bizarre or the risque? You know, stories about people getting hacked to pieces before the Lord. Uh, you know, David getting caught with Saul in an awkward moment in a cave. A Saul pops a squat. Uh, ghosts appearing and talking about terrible things that are going to happen. Here in Second Samuel, you're going to hear stories of, of peeping toms and adultery and, uh, and incest and Absalom getting trapped by his hair in a tree and being treated like a pinata. I, I mean, these, it's like these books are written for a middle school audience. All right? and, and this story does not disappoint. All kinds of drama in this story. In this bizarre story, David is going to teach you some things about gospel-centered worship. Now, let me just acknowledge something here as we get into this. I realize that we got a lot of people in here who come from some pretty different backgrounds as, as it relates to worship. For some of you that grew up in church, worship was very subdued. It was reflective. Uh, you know, the, the Presbyterians, uh, many of you Baptists, uh, Catholics. Another way of categorizing this group is all you white people, Okay. For others of you, worship was more of the Pentecostal variety. If the service was any good, somebody passed out, right? And those of you who are more subdued, look at those who are yelling and got their hands in the air, and you feel like they're loud and irreverent. They're doing all this stuff for show. And those of you who are more on the energetic side, look around, and you're like, what's wrong with you people, right? I mean, you yell your heads off at a basketball game, but every week you come in here and act like you're at a funeral. Right? Others of you who are new to Christianity... You just wonder what the big deal is anyway. What, you're like, what's with you people? You're singing so much, and I just don't get that. You know, raising your hands, it's like you got a question in the middle of worship. What, what, what's going on with that? I had a guy um, who was coming to our church. He was a graduate student at Duke. We had lunch together. He said, um, your church, first church I've ever been to. He's like, I, I come every single week to your church. He said, but I, I'm always 25 minutes late on purpose. He said, because I just, I, I, I just want to skip the music part because it just makes me feel weird. Everybody in there singing, and I just don't sing with large groups of people. And so you may wonder, what is the big deal with, with worship? Well, I think that today there's something in here for all of you. Some of you are legitimately going to change an attitude that you have toward worship. I'm going to show you that the subdued people are partly right and partly wrong. I'm going to show you that the energetic people are partly right and partly wrong. And some of you who aren't Christians are going to learn what's going on with this craziness that we call worship. Now, I'll also tell you, there are some things that are very difficult to hear in this passage. Um, some things that are difficult for me to say, um, but not to try to be overly dramatic. I've told you this before. I feel like the Holy Spirit has made very clear to me that it is not my responsibility to edit God's Word in any form or fashion whatsoever and to try to make it politically correct or more pleasing for you to hear or more according to my own preferences even. Right? I, I, I try to give it to you unfiltered. Right? And so if you've got a problem with some of the things I'm going to say today, um, I would encourage you not to take it up with me because I didn't write it. Take it up with the author who wrote these things. Right? I'm just going to try to give it to you the way that it's written and all of its glorious offensiveness. Right? So you just need to be, you need to be ready. Need to be ready. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 2. We're going to do that thing where I read a little bit, talk a little bit, read, talk, read, talk. All right, 2 Samuel 6 verse 2. And David arose and went to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Stop. First, got to get a little background here. What is the ark? When Israel left Egypt, God told them to construct a big wooden box and overlay it with gold. 
and put a couple of statues of some angels called the cherubim on top. And in between it was a little place, a little platform called the mercy seat. And once a year, one priest, the high priest, would go into the place where they kept the Ark of the Covenant, uh, a place called the Holy of Holies, which was in the tabernacle. It was a room. There was nothing in the room except for this Ark of the Covenant, the only piece of furniture in there. One priest would go in one time a year with the blood of a sacrifice, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, signifying that God would one day send the sacrifice to pay for the sins of the people of Israel. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, inside of that box, there were three things. There was a jar of manna, which is what God had provided for the people in the wilderness. It symbolized God's provision for them. There was the two tables of the Ten Commandments, which symbolized God's law um, that he had given to them. And then thirdly, there was uh, Aaron's rod that budded, uh, which means it's like his walking stick that sprouted pears and apples and that kind of stuff. Um, And that symbolizes God's miraculous power. His provision, his laws, and his power. That's what they kept inside of that. It was the presence of God uh, to these people. Right? So David is getting the ark back, which brings up the second kind of background question. That is, where has the ark been? You know, has it been on vacation or, or, or what's been going on? Well, in order to answer that, you've got to go all the way back to 1 Samuel 5. Don't turn there. I'll just kind of walk you through this chapter um, to find out what happened to the ark. 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Israelites are going to battle against the Philistines. But because the Israelites have greatly sinned against God and have been living with all kinds of idolatry and rebellion, they lose the battle against the Philistines, right? Well, well, rather than repenting of their sin, they thought, I know, let's take the Ark of the Covenant into the battle with us, because if we have the Ark of the Covenant with us, there's no way we can lose. You know, it was their, their, it was their rabbit's foot. It was their four-leaf clover. It was their grilled cheese with the Virgin Mary's face that appeared in it, grilled cheeses. That was what, they, what it was for them. They thought, this is our good luck charm. There's no way we can lose. But, you know, as you probably understand, God is not into being manipulated. And good luck charms don't make any difference to him, whether they're of crosses or whether they're four-leaf clovers. And so uh, the people not only lose the battle, they lose the ark itself. The Philistines capture the ark of the covenant in battle, and they take it like a trophy back to a city, one of their cities called Ashdod, and put it in the temple of their god of war uh, named Dagon. Right? And they put it right beside of the statue of Dagon to try to show, you know, ha, 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 our God beat up your God in battle. Right? So the next morning, they come into the temple of Dagon, and they find as they walk in that the statue of Dagon is now lying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant, which you've got to admit is kind of funny. It's like God pulled a fraternity prank on them. You know, he took their statue and made it lie prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they're like, well, that's really weird. And so the, the, the priest, their priests get their statue of Dagon and stand the thing back up, which ought to tell you something. When you have to stand your God of war back up, might not be the right God, all right? But, but they don't get that. They stand it back up. Well, they come in the next morning. Again, Dagon is face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant, except this time his head and hands have disappeared. And they're like, wow, that is, that is just so weird. Where did his head and his hands go? All right, well, that afternoon, it says a disease swept through the city of Ashdod, and everybody developed tumors, and then mice overran the city, and, there, and somebody was like, you know, call me superstitious, but I think this might have something to do with that ark. So they wrapped up the ark and sent it to another Philistine city called Gath. That's right, they re-gifted the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> and the people of Gath are like, what is, what, what, why do we get this? Look at that. And the people of Ashdod are like, Enjoy. And so the people of Gath get it. Same thing happens to them. And tumors break out on everybody. Mice overrun the city and a bunch of people die. And they're like, well, we don't want this thing. So they send it to a third city, Philistine city, called Ekron. 
Same thing happens in Ekron. And so finally the Philistine rulers are like, look, we got to get rid of this thing. We're just feeling like the ark is not the best fit for us. It doesn't really go with our other furniture. Um, we should probably return this to Israel right away. All right, so they get their priests together and they're like, what do we do with this thing? You know, and the priests say, in a truly fascinating conversation, the priests say, well, you give it back to Israel, but you can't just give it back. You got to include like an I'm sorry gift with it. And they're like, uh, like, I'm sorry, like flowers or something? And they're like, yeah, but not flowers. You need to make images, golden images of the tumors and golden images of the mice. I get the mice part, but how do you make a golden image of a tumor? You know, yesterday my daughter came to me with a little mashed up yellow Play-Doh and said, look, Daddy, I made the sunshine. And I was like, well, that's awesome. Uh, that has to be something like how you make a tumor out of gold. Just like, there it is. It's a tumor. You know, it's, it's, it's there. Uh, so they make these images of tumors, and they make these images of mice, and they put them beside the Ark of the Covenant. They put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and put a couple cows in front of the cart, and then they get an argument about who's going to drive the cart back to Israel because who wants to drive this thing, you know, back to Israel where their enemies live? Well, while they're in the middle of this argument, all of a sudden the cows just turn themselves around and face toward Israel, and walk back all the way to Israel. They cross the border and they go right to the house of a guy named Shemesh. Right? Shemesh recognizes what this thing is, so he takes the cows and he kills them, and then he takes the wood and he tears up, or excuse me, takes the wood of the cart and uses that to build a fire and then offers the cows as a sacrifice on the fire to God. And then he takes the Ark of the Covenant and puts it in his house. All right? Well, some of the people in his house get curious and look inside of the Ark and they die. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You know what that happens when you do that. So they look inside of the ark. They all die. And Shemesh is like, I don't really want this thing. So he calls up a buddy of his, a guy named Abinadab, and says, hey, man, I got something for you. I want you to have the Ark of the Covenant. Abinadab comes and gets it, puts it in his house, in his tent that he lives in. He's got like a guest room that nobody ever goes in. And he puts it there. And anytime a guest comes to his house, like, you know, what's in that room? He's like, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. And it stays there for 20 years, 20 years. That brings us up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Come on now, that was a lot of detail, huh? All right, thanks. So, that's between verse 2 and verse 3, okay? It's going to be a long Sunday. Verse 3. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah, who was the son of Abinadab, was driving the new cart. Verse 5, and David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and a Hammond B3 organ and an electric guitar, right? They are having a worship service. I mean, they're doing what you think they ought to be doing. Verse 6, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God to steady it. So in other words, what's happening is these cows, these oxen are walking along and one of them trips over something and he starts to stumble and that cart starts to teeter back and forth and then that Ark of the Covenant starts to sway back and forth and Uzzah jumps off that cart and he runs around and he reaches up and he grabs a hold of the Ark to keep it from falling down on the ground. Verse 7, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And literally in Hebrew, what it says there is his, his irreverence. And he died there beside the ark of God. Look at this next verse. Verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. How many of you understand that reaction? Hmm? 
One of the things that I love about the Bible is how honest it is. David looks at God and is like, God, come on. He's trying to help you out. He's trying to do you a favor. The reason I point that out is because sometimes people encounter truths about God in the Bible today, and they feel offended. And then they arrogantly assume that we are the first generation in history to be enlightened enough to be offended by the Bible. The Bible has been offending people for ages, including its writers. I had somebody recently who was struggling with their faith say to me, they're like, you know, it's not that I don't believe in God. I actually believe that he's there. I don't know how everything else would be here if he weren't there. It's just that I don't like him. I don't like how he set up the universe. I don't like the fact that he doesn't stop injustice. I don't like the whole judgment thing. I don't like how he rules the world. David gets that. David was angry at God because of what he perceived as unusually harsh judgment. You're not the first one to be offended at God. The Bible's been offending all people in all places at all times. It's an equal opportunity offender. Right? The point I'm trying to make is don't be an ignorant and arrogant American who assumes you're the first people in history to be offended just because you graduated with a UNC Chapel Hill education. All right? You're not. People have always been offended. You're like, well, why are you pointing this out? This is not helping me. Because they found reasons to believe anyway. I'm just trying to say, if this is the God of the universe, you can expect to be offended. And there's a lot of stuff in here that you are going to be offended by. And you've got to make a decision whether you're going to edit the Bible to fit your preferences or whether you're going to stand on the word of God and let it change you. Okay? Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, well, how could the ark of the Lord come to me? Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. You get that? David walked away from God. He put it in the house of somebody who's not even a Jew. David and God broke up temporarily is how you read that. David walks away from God. Write this down. Number one, the problem of God's presence. The problem of God's presence you see, the ark represents God's presence. It brings his blessing. It is David's source of strength and security and identity, right? David wants God to be in his life. David craves the presence of God, just like many of you do, especially at Christmas time. Christmas time, you start thinking, God really needs to be a part of my life. God needs to be a part of my family. God needs to be a part of my life before I die. A lot of us want the security that the presence of God brings, but there's a problem with the ark. There's a problem with God's presence, and that is, it's dangerous. It can also cause great destruction, not just for the Philistines, it also killed a bunch of Israelites too. Now, like I told you, we got a problem with this. Because we're like, you know, Uzzah here looks like he's doing God a favor, doesn't he? You know, when he thinks, we think that Uzzah probably should have heard God shouting down from heaven like, hey, Uzzah, appreciate that, thanks a lot. Thanks for helping me out. And we look at this and we're like, you know, he dies. God, what's the problem with this? I mean, maybe he touched the arm, maybe that was forbidden, but his heart was good. He was sincere. He's trying to do you a favor. You should have rewarded this guy, not struck him dead. Bottom line is we think the punishment is more severe than the crime, don't we? You see, and when the punishment is more severe than the crime, a little tuning fork goes off inside of us that says injustice. And here we think that God is being unjust and our hearts accuse God of injustice and that angers us just like it did David. Here's the Bible's premise, and I give it to you straight up with no apology. The punishment is not more severe than the crime. 
Punishment's not more severe than the crime. A couple of things going on here. First, God had given specific instructions on how that ark was to be carried to avoid situations like this one. God had told them in the book of Numbers that they were to make holes in it, which they did, that you put poles through and you would carry it. A certain group of priests would carry it on their shoulders and they would cover it so that nobody could ever have a reason that they had to touch the ark. But how are the Israelites carrying it? They had it on a cart pulled by a couple oxen. Where did they learn that? They learned that from the Philistines. That's right. You know, this one passage ought to settle for all time the question of, you can, how, of whether or not you can come to God any way you want to come, of whether or not you can just worship him any way you want as long as your heart is sincere. This is how I prefer to do it. I think this passage is pretty clear that God decides how he is to be worshipped. God decides the way that you are supposed to get to him. God is the one who defines his own worship. That's the first problem. The second problem is a much even more serious problem than that one bigger issue and that is Uzzah is unaware of his own sinfulness Uzzah is unaware of his own sinfulness Uzzah sees the ark about to touch the ground and he wants to protect the ark from the earth he thinks I should keep the ark from touching the ground because the ground is dirty Uzzah assumes that his hand is less dirty than the ground is but the earth has never committed the blasphemy of rejecting God's authority the earth had always obeyed the commands of God. It wasn't the ground or the dirt that would pollute the ark. It was the touch of man that would pollute the ark. Uzzah doesn't understand that, so he touches the ark. David doesn't understand that either, so he's mad at God for striking Uzzah dead. Now, write this down. The reason we do not understand the judgment of God is we don't understand the wickedness of our sinfulness. The reason we do not understand the judgment of God is we don't understand the wickedness of our sinfulness. Let me, let, me, let me try to bring this down to us, okay? Because most of us have never seen somebody struck dead for touching the ark. Most of us have never seen the ark of the covenant. Nobody's seen the ark of the covenant for 2,500 years except for Harrison Ford, okay? Most of us haven't seen this. So let me try to bring this down to us. Many of us are angry at God because of the whole hell thing. We think that hell is too severe a punishment for sin, don't we? We're like, God, I mean, come on. One small sin one small sin and an eternity of being apart from God? How is it that sin we commit in a 70-year span? How is that it is punished by hell for eternity? That is too severe. It's an overreaction. Or, or you just think about the cross. What had we done that was so bad that required the Son of God to come down and to be beaten so that his flesh was flayed open? What was so severe that he went through the cross? What was it about what we had done that that's what it required to pay for our sin? They say the cross was unspeakably brutal. You can see it in the scriptures. They beat him with a cat of nine tails before they got him to the cross. Historian Cicero tells us that many men never made it to the cross. They were just beaten and they would die on the, the whipping block because they would take that cat of nine tails, which had pieces of bone and metal and, and glass that would, as it would wrap around the body of the person they were beating, it would dig into the skin and the muscle they would hit them 39 times, and after they would wrap it around, they would jerk it and would pull off the skin, and eventually it'd start to open up the abdominal cavity. They say that, that it is very likely that when Jesus was done with this beating, that his intestines would have been hanging down to his knees. Nails put in his hands and his feet, his beard pulled out, his face beaten so that Isaiah says he didn't even look like a man anymore. You could not only not recognize him, you couldn't even recognize that he was a human. What had we done that was so bad? You see, the cross had, it ought to tell you something about the severity of our sin. See, some of you hear that, you're like, well, that's gross. That's the point. Cross grosses you out, your sin grosses God out. 
The cross was the just penalty for our sin. sin. Hell is what hell is because our sin, what our sin is what our sin is. The cross is what the cross was because our sin is what it was. And the fact that we don't see it as wicked is part of the problem. Adam and Eve made a choice, a choice of cosmic treason. They put their fist in God's face and said, no, you will not be in charge. We will be in charge. You're like, well, I'm not Adam and Eve. I wasn't there. I didn't eat the apple. I don't even like apples. Why am I being punished for their sin? You ever thought that? You ratify their decision. Every one of us. Every one of us ratified their decision. A guy named St. Augustine had a great way of talking about this. He said, I remember, he says, I remember the day that I ratified that decision. He says, I was walking down a road and I looked in a guy's yard across a fence and I saw that he had a pear tree. And I wanted some of those pears. But I knew it was stealing. He said, so I crawled across that fence and I got those apples. He said, but the, re or the pears, the reason I went and got those pears is not just because I was hungry, I also was excited about it because it was wrong. He said, not only did I steal because of my hunger, I also enjoyed the wrongness of what I was doing. And he said, accurately, every single person comes to a place in their life where they delight in the wrong more than they delight in the right. And that is counted as hatred of God. Because when you love the wrong and you love injustice more than you love the right, that is a way of saying, God, I hate you. I hate goodness. I hate truth. And I delight more in the wrong than I do in the right. That is cosmic treason. And it deserves the just condemnation of God. Now, you know, many people say to me, they're like, well, I mean, you know, I just don't get the whole thing about God. Why didn't God loves people, doesn't he? Why didn't God just let everybody into heaven? You don't want that. You do not want that. I mean, imagine if somebody came here to our church and was an outspoken and known child molester, unrepentant child molester. You know, it, it, is what you want me to do to be like, hey, man, we're so glad. We, we accept you. Come in, have free roam in our congregation. Hey, you want to work in our kids' ministry? That's fine. I mean, that might be loving and kind in some very narrow, small kind of way, but that is not overall loving, is it? Now, you, 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 you know, you say, well, how's that? If God let sin into heaven, we would turn heaven into hell. We would turn heaven into what we've turned this place in down here, and God is so holy and pure, he cannot have injustice pollute the place where he is. You're like, well, ha, I get it, though, but what if, if that child molester repented? Then we would accept him. You're right. We would accept him. We probably still wouldn't work on our kids' ministry. He definitely still wouldn't work on our kids' ministry, but we would accept him. But see, here's the deal. People in hell never repent. People in hell never repent. I know that's surprising for some of you. But see, they go to hell because they hate God's authority in their life. And in hell, that never changes because repentance is a gift that God gives. And they never learn to love God. Yes, they hate the pain of hell, but they hate God even more. C.S. Lewis had a great way of talking about this in a book called The Great Divorce. And at the Great Divorce, he talks about um, a bus going from hell to heaven with a bunch of people from hell on it, and they get all the way up to heaven, and they're amazed, yes, by the beauties of heaven, but they hate the God that's there, and at the end of the day, they want to go back to hell, because the only thing they hate worse than the pain of hell is the God of heaven. And never repent. They don't, yes, they hate the pain, but they hate God. They hate his authority. All this I'm trying to show you is that the punishment is not too severe for the crime. God is so holy that he cannot tolerate impurity. It would be like mixing in a little blood contaminated with an AIDS virus into a glass of milk you were drinking. How much do I have to mix in before you consider the whole thing contaminated? Right? Yeah, oh, but we're religious. We're God's people. Great, you got some religion in you. Awesome. It almost, it'd be like if somebody was in the hospital of an infectious disease. They had a catheter in them taking out the, 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 the waste out of their body after they die of that disease. I pull that catheter out. And I cut off a little section of that tube and I hand it to you as a drinking straw. 
You're like, I, no, you know, and I'm like, oh, but there's no more urine in it now. You can drink whatever you want to out of it. That thing is so contaminated with disease and disgusting stuff that you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want any part of You want to touch it. That's you. That's you and me. Uzzah touched the ark, and he died. Here's a question you ought to think about. This morning, many of you are holding the word of God in your hand. Why are you still alive? We talk about seeing God's, if God ripped the roof off this place and we all look up at him, we would all die. I, I thought about this this week. I'm standing up here with you holding the word of God in my hands, explaining the word of God to you. Why am I alive? You understand, see, this is, this is serious stuff. Uzzah touched the ark and Uzzah died. We got a problem with God's presence. Look at the next verse, verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed, you got to circle that word, he blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It's like God was sending a message to David that his intention is still blessing. And so David's faith is rekindled. See, write this down, number two, the ark's gospel. The problem of God's presence, number two, the ark's gospel. Verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, what, what, did you see that? Those who bore the ark of the Lord, what's happening? They're carrying it the right way now, right? And then the next phrase says, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. He offered sacrifices. Listen, God had provided a way for his presence to be with his people safely and that was through the sacrifice that was offered once a year and that's what you see david honoring here you see what would happen is the blood of that animal was going to signify that one day god was going to send someone to die for the sins of man and to take the wrath that god rightfully was directing at us into his own body and that was going to be jesus christ yeah i've told you before that jesus christ when he died it was, it was something like if you were standing on a beach and an 80-foot-high tsunami wave was coming at you at 75 miles an hour, about to kill you and sweep you away forever, and right before it got to you, the ground in front of you opened up so that that entire tsunami wave and all that water was sucked up into the ground so not a drop touched you. That is what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. Every ounce of God's wrath that was directed at you and me was poured into his body so that he was punished for our sin, bruised for our iniquities. God cannot hold me accountable for that sin because the punishment has already been poured into Jesus. It would be unjust for God to punish Jesus and me. So when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, he took the wrath. Right? Uzzah was struck dead for touching God's presence. Jesus was struck dead so that I could touch God's presence. And what's interesting is that when Jesus is resurrected, you ever seen this detail? When the women go to the resurrected tomb or the tomb of the resurrection, there's a little detail in there that says there was two angels. Two angels, one on, even tells you where they were, one on either side of the place where Jesus lay. What is that supposed to make your mind think about? The Ark of the Covenant, right? The place where the mercy seat was between those two angels, the body of Jesus is the blood and the mercy seat so that no more wrath is left for us. You get this? One of two ways you're going to pay for your sin. Either you're going to pay for it yourself in eternity, the eternal death, or Jesus suffers the death penalty for you. It's a gift that he gives to all who will receive and believe. David believes that gospel, and he's willing to obey God's word. Now, watch David's response. Break this down, number three. David's response to the gospel. David's response to the gospel, number three. Verse 14. And David danced... Before the Lord, with all of his might, 
And David was wearing a linen ephod. Some translations say naked there. But Hebrew scholars tell us that the phrase means that David had just stripped down to his undergarments to a linen ephod, which was the Hebrew version of like adult underoos or something. Um, a linen ephod. They're actually quite comfortable. I'm wearing one right now. I've converted over to that. Um, you can get them at Target. Boxers, briefs, or linen ephods. Verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. And she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. We'll come back to that. Verse 18. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. I love this next. We're going to come back to this too. Verse 19. And distributed among all the people the whole multitude, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed and went to their house. Isn't that just a random detail? There's a very important reason why that detail's in there that we're going to come back to right at the end. Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Well, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of those vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. You were like uh, Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley on that dancing video. This is disgusting. You humiliated yourself. You look like a servant, David, all dancing in your underoos. You didn't look like a king. That's Saul's daughter. Apple didn't fall far from the tree, did it? Saul was always worried about what everybody thought about him. Michael was worried about what everybody thinks about David. Well, David, who was pretty good with the smack talk, says back to her, verse 21, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Uh-uh. He did not just bring up her father-in-law. Yes, he did, all right? And above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself even more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But those female servants about whom you spoke, by them I'm going to be held in honor. In other words, he said, God chose me when I was nothing, and now that I am something, I'm going to show people it's because God is something in me, not that I'm something in myself. Your father's problem, Michael, is that he wanted people to think a lot of him. I don't want people to make a big deal out of me. I want them to make a big deal out of God. And so if i got to be unglorified before people to put on display the glory of God, that's fine with me. And ironically, Michael, my greatest honor in the eyes of all these people that you're saying are going to think I'm humiliated, my greatest honor is going to be that I didn't point people to myself. I pointed them to Jesus, which is why we talk 23,000 years later about Saul, I mean David and not Saul. Here's the biggest difference between Saul and David. Saul wanted to be a big deal in everyone's eyes, so he was destroyed. David wanted God to be a big deal, and if David was going to be destroyed, that was okay with him. He, if he needed to be humiliated for that to happen, he was willing. David knew that looking small to others might help him see the largeness of God. Only one person can be a big deal in your life. Only one. It's either going to be you or it's going to be God. And one of the ways that David did that was, like, get this, through his worship. David was aware that people were watching him as he worshiped, and they were learning something about the value of God to him by the way that he worshiped. So here's my question for you. What does your worship tell people about the value of God to you? What does your worship tell people about the value of God to you? Some of you are like, well, what exactly do you mean worship? Is that like dancing like this? Is that how we're going to apply this sermon? We're all going to strip down to our skivvies, you know, and, 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 and get on it? No, okay? That, that's illegal, all right? And it's cold. Uh, 
Is worship the singing part of all this? Is it just music? You write this down. Worship is our response, whatever it is. Worship is our response, whatever it is, to the gospel. Worship is not just what we do in here when we sing. Worship is how we live. Worship is how we spend our money. It's what we do with our time. It's the values we teach our children. It's how we treat the poor. It's how we respond to the things that God hates, like sin and injustice and the lies that people from Westboro Baptist tell others about God, okay? Worship is how you respond to all those things. Worship is not just what we do in here when we sing, but it certainly includes what we do in here. When we come together as a community, we sing God's praise and listen to God's word. And the way that we do those things puts on display God's greatness and his glory in our lives. Now again, what should that look like? Does that mean at the end of the sermon we, you know, get indecent? Write this down too. Give me a lot of stuff to write down. I think you should. Your worship makes a statement to others about the worth of God to you. Our worship puts our hunger for God on display for the world to see. Our worship should physically demonstrate our admiration of God's greatness and our gratitude for his grace. David in the Psalms says constantly that when he worships, he is aware that the nations are watching him and are learning about the value of God to him by the way that he worships. Do you ever think that the reason maybe that our community out there doesn't take God more seriously has something to do with the way we worship him in here? Because that's what David said. The reason that they out there may not take God as seriously is because of the way we worship him in here. Now, I've had this conversation for nine years, so I'm good at it. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, so I'm going to save you all the emails. I'm just going to go through them and, and, and go back through nine years of conversations. Some of you are like, well, I'm just not that expressive as a person. It's just not my personality. I understand. And I'm not telling you you should be somebody else during worship. And I'll buy that, that you're not an expressive person, as long as it is true that if I walked up to you with an envelope with a million dollars in it and put it in your hand and said, this is a gift to you, and you took that envelope and you opened it and you said, well, praise God. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> if it's true that that is how you would respond, then I'll buy that. Otherwise, I'd say it's probably the million dollars seems more valuable in your eyes than the salvation God has given you does. There's a woman who came to Jesus whom Jesus had forgiven in the middle of a dinner. She comes in, begins to weep. She lets her hair down. She breaks a bottle of perfume over his feet. She begins to weep and wash his feet with her tears and wipe his feet with her hair. And can you imagine something more degrading and humiliating? And everybody around us, what is wrong? This is not Better Homes and Gardens approved right here, okay? This is, this is bad stuff. This is not Southern living. This is humiliating. This is not how you play hostess. And Jesus said, don't you touch her. Don't you talk to her. Because this woman gets something that all you dignified people don't get, and she understands what it means to be forgiven, and she understands that an appropriate response is to love like this and to express her love like this. And then Jesus made that statement, those who are forgiven much love much. And if you don't love and express that in praise, it might be a signal that you have never really understood the depth of the forgiveness that God has given you. Maybe that's the problem. 
you're like, well, I, I think somber reflection and a sense of awe are what is important in worship. Listen, I agree. The Bible presents a range of emotions that are appropriate in worship. Sometimes you need to be on your face in the presence of God. Sometimes you need to stand in the presence of God in stunned silence. Sometimes when God's word is being taught, you ought to have a pen and notebook out writing out things that God is saying to you. When your boss speaks to you at work, if he's a boss that you respect and trust, you pull out a pen and write down what he's saying so you get it right. Does your boss mean more to you than God does? Right? Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes weeping over your sin is an appropriate response to God. Sometimes sitting in awe in God's presence is appropriate. Sometimes you need to clap your hands, all you people, and shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Let me just put this really bluntly. Some of you need to repent of the dignity that you carry yourself with in church. We've got two pastors on our staff. They told me this story this week and gave me full permission to share this. One of them is named Daniel. He's a white guy. Grew up in a Presbyterian household. Right? Kind of somber. It's his nature. Another one of our pastors is named Radel. He grew up in a Pentecostal household. Right? And he's Hispanic, so he's got a double whammy on the whole emotion thing. Right? And they got this argument, argument in our offices about what is appropriate in response to worship. And Daniel said to Rodell, he said, I, I, I'm, just, I, I'm just reflective. I just am somber. That's how I show that to God. And Rodell said, fine. As long as it is true that that's how you would respond in joy in every other area of your life, I understand that. So Daniel left the argument and said, he said, for two weeks, I'm going to watch myself, how I respond in various situations, how I respond to my daughter when she walks in the room, how I respond to my wife when I haven't seen her in a while, how I respond when my favorite football team wins a game. And he said, what I discovered was that it was in the arena of the knowledge of God that was the only area where I did not express emotion and joy. And he came back to Radel. And he said, you were right and I was wrong. There is a place that is very appropriate for me to express my emotion to God and for me to express that back to him. Some of you guys feel like worship is girly. Emotions and expressiveness and praise and joy. You're like, I'm not a singer. Singing's not what I do. My life is not a Glee episode. <laughs> I've never looked at a sunset and burst into tears. The double rainbow, what does it mean? I've never done that. <laughs> Couple of things to say to you, okay? Number one, David killed a nine-foot giant and cut off his head and carried it back to Jerusalem under his arm. He had songs written about him by teenage girls about how he had slain huge armies single-handedly. Does that happen to you, tough guy? You got any heads of any giants hanging around? Girls have written songs about you? And the problem is not that worship is not manly. It's that you don't know humility and understand salvation like David does. Just call it what it is. Second, if I can just go ahead and get more personal and meddle in your life even more than I already am. This is what the problem is in some of you guys is marriage. You don't know how to express yourself. You're one of those clueless guys that thinks, you know, as long as I put food on the table, she's going to know that I love her. Any Christian counselor will tell you that that is absolutely moronic. I had to learn that in my marriage. It's not enough for me to simply be a faithful husband. I have to express tenderness and affection to my wife and to my children. That is not only good for them, it is good for me. 
There is a role to expressing your emotion to God. Some of you say, well, I'm just I'm not a mature enough Christian yet. I, mean, I don't know enough. I've, I've only been a Christian for a little while. I don't buy that either. You're on top of a 10-story building. It's completely engulfed in flames. You're going to die. All of a sudden, when you're about to give up hope, a fireman bursts through that door, picks you up, carries you down 10 flights of stairs, sets you in safety. Five minutes later, somebody walks up to you and says, what just happened? You may not know the guy's name. You may not even know exactly how it happened, but you could say, that guy took me out of there. If you understand the depth of salvation, it results in overflowing praise. And if you're not a worshiper, it might be that you don't really understand the gospel. So to my Presbyterian and Baptist friends, right? This is about putting God on display. And some of you need to repent of the dignified way that you conduct yourself in worship. You need to repent of your whiteness. How about I just say it like that? Now, some of you sitting there right now saying, don't you judge me. You don't know my heart. You're right. I can't judge you, and I don't know your heart. And the point is, nobody knows your heart. And you were supposed to put your heart on display in worship because the surrounding nations were supposed to learn about the value of God to you through the way that you worship. And they're not because you don't ever put it on display. Your kids are not learning the value of God to you because of the way that you worship. And to my Pentecostal friends, this is not just emotion and frenzy. Right? We don't praise God when the choir hits a high note. This is a genuine response or I say something that's alliterated or I say something that rhymes. That's not when you're supposed to yell. This is a genuine response of awe to the gospel that affects not just your singing, it affects how you do your taxes. How you worship on the other six days is just as important as what you do in here. That's worship. That's gospel-centered worship. Now, real quick. Here's the thing I skipped. I told you I'd come back to it. I really need to. Verse 19, look at this. David gives out all the cakes of bread, portions of meat, cake of raisins to each one. All the people departed each to his own house. Raisin cakes in Hebrew culture are aphrodisiacs. That's why they all went home after David gave them to them. That's why it says that. Seriously. So when the time was right, they were right, okay? The point, listen, why is that detail in there? Why is that detail in there? point is the gospel makes you fruitful worshiping the gospel produces spiritual fruit in your life I, i've used this analogy with you a number of times not to be crass or crude but this is it's a biblical analogy how is physical fruit produced physical fruit a child when a man and woman come together and conceive a child they're not thinking about the mechanics of producing that child they're not thinking about child 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 you know they're thinking I get swept up in a moment of intimacy and connection and love with my spouse and the offspring, the fruit of that is a child. How do you produce spiritual fruit in your life? It's not about thinking like joy, 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 joy. Worship, worship, worship. That's not how you do it. <laughs> the way that you produce spiritual fruit is you get caught up in a moment of intimacy with Jesus Christ, swept up in awe and adoration for what he's given you in the gospel and how glorious he is and the fruit of that, the offspring of that. Is love, joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering, gentleness, patience. That's spiritual fruit. That's why that little detail is in there. And that's why the probably most tragic verse of this is verse 23, the way this whole thing ends. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child. She was fruitless to the day of her death. Listen, 
as a response to Michael not understanding the gospel, not understanding her need of forgiveness, she was fruitless to the day that she died. You know what's really ironic about that? In just a few chapters, you're going to hear a story about another woman who commits adultery on her husband and then is complicit in his murder. Which sin is worse? Not understanding the gospel and understanding your need of God that responds in overflowing worship or committing adultery and killing your husband? I'd say most of us would say adultery and the murder is probably in the worst category. That woman Bathsheba was going to have a son named Solomon. Childless Solomon. What is that trying to tell you? God can forgive any sin. God can take even the most terrible things and make them beautiful. The one thing that God cannot do is work with somebody who has no sense of their need of him. And someone who doesn't think that they need him is the one who doesn't worship and respond to the gospel. That's why I've told you that it is not your sin that keeps you from knowing God. It's not your sin that sends you to hell. It's your righteousness. Your sense of righteousness. Your sense of self-sufficiency. God can forgive any sin. It's your righteousness that will keep you from understanding your need for God, which will keep you from throwing yourself on his overflowing grace, which will result in a change of life and a knowledge of God. You need to repent of your dignity, you need to repent of your righteousness, and you need to find the overflowing worship that comes through faith in the gospel. All of our campuses, if you would, would you bow your heads with me for a minute? You might close your eyes, you might leave them open during this time, but would you... Would you reflect on the forgiveness that God has given you? Maybe you've never received the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has offered. It's a gift that he gives to all who will receive it. He suffered the penalty for your sin and offers it as a gift. He can forgive it, reunite you to God, bring the presence of God back into your life, but you've got to receive it. If you've never done so, you can do that now. If you have, maybe during this time you could reflect on how good God has been to you. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would be a church that is filled up and saturated with the gospel and the result is overflowing, effusive, humble, adoring, awed, silenced praise that we would respond to the greatness of our God and how we listen, how we obey, how we worship. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.